Oh boy, go live time. 5-4-2022, we're up, we're live. Uh, interesting things continue to go on in the realm of cyber. Um, so let's go into that. But before we go too far down the rabbit hole, uh, I do want to put out a couple of pieces of, uh, I guess you'd call it proof or like reality around what's actually uh, transpiring in a variety of different systems. So let's kind of get into this. Um, you typically will see that there's a lot of folks that are talking big time about, uh, you know, the the how hard this stuff is, the cybersecurity side of it, how bad the bad guys are. Um, it's not really what you would think in that realm. So let's just do one one or two things here. If you've never heard of a Google dork. Go look up what a Google dork is. Okay, well, let me caveat that. I'm not telling you to do anything. I'm just saying go look up what a Google dork is. So know that. Um, now let's take that Google dork, which there's a bunch of brand new ones that just came out for 2022. And let's go throw some of those into some searches and see what kind of things we can find because I find that this is a great way to understand um, and continue to provide reality and gravitas that it's not always uh, as easy, well, not, excuse me, not as difficult as folks make it out to be. All right, so let me just do a couple of things here on Google Dork. So I'm going to take a Google Dork and I'm going to go look and I'm going to do a look for spreadsheets. So spreadsheets that have been left kind of bumping around on the internet in places where they shouldn't be. Um, and we'll go look at some of the things from there. So with that being said, Google Dork, so I'm gonna take it. Whoops, I'm double okay. dipping there. Uh, so I'm gonna look at the spreadsheets. So these are file type XLS. Right, so you get a lot of results. So I got about 9 million results for spreadsheets. Not a whole lot of interesting things there. Um, spreadsheets are spreadsheets. You might get some open source research, some Intel, you know, those types of things. Um, however, let's go add another qualifier, another delimiter to this particular Google dork. So, and again, I'm not throwing myself under the bus. I'm not giving you the full specifics here. I'm just giving um, some pointers. So let's go look for spreadsheets that are related to the term password. Now, immediately you would probably be thinking, there's no way that someone's dumb enough to put a spreadsheet full of passwords and usernames on the internet. Let's run that. So click, there we go. Uh, and this is for this particular thing, spreadsheets containing information related to passwords. And I got 22,300 results in 0.45 seconds. Um, and some of them are obviously ads for password things. Now, one of the ones that show up right off the bat is uh, EFF.org. And I'm, I'm not putting anyone out here that doesn't kind of deserve to be put out here. And I will notify these people of this because I've already done this before and I'll do it again. Um, here's a password sheet from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Oh, and it's off of their social media information. Could I log into their Twitter and LinkedIn and whatever else and do bad things? Maybe. Uh, where else? Can we, oh, the EPA. Hmm. The EPA. What does the EPA do? Oh, the EPA does environment stuff. And guess what? Um, this has got stuff related to their 
ESX server login. Does that sound like a problem? If I can get to the EPA with passwords? Uh, here's a university. Um, I talked recently about California courts. Here's another California court system that's available with their passwords stored in a spreadsheet on the internet. Um, and luckily, because somebody misconfigured whatever they were doing here and managed to store this and then put it out there where they didn't mean for it to go, uh, I'm also able to look at this and see um, the requirements they have for the passwords on that system. So if I was going to do password busting or to go after that, I think it's great that they just gave this to me. Um, University of Maryland, oh no, excuse me, maryland.gov, a um, couple of others there. So are we starting to see like a trend here that this, this stuff is not really that complicated. These are things that they should be fixed pretty readily. Here's uh, michigan.gov. Um, oh, and it's got pricing information along with the password stuff, which is great. Tells me um, some specifics on the discounts they offer for people that use this system to get to that thing. Uh, NewYork.gov, usernames and passwords. And let's go one more just because you would think there's no way that this stuff would be available um, out there. Uh, AustraliaGov, you guys are no better than the Americans. Hate to break it to you. Illinois.gov, um, lead information. Oh, and this is actually stuff that's got login and username information related to stuff that has SCADA. Um, I see heat input, I see the facility name, I see the amount of load, so electricity would be my guess. Um, and just one or two more, North Carolina. I mean, a lot of state and local government stuff is on here. A lot of small university stuff is through this, but it, it, it literally is a Google search if you know the correct things to put in and the right way to search. Um, taxes for the state of Ohio. Uh, government in Maine, um, which is National Plan and Provider Enumeration System. Um, okay. Uh, Indiana, uh, tax stuff, and one more. It's mostly state and local, lots of that type of thing. Um, Rhode Island, Nichols.edu, which I guess is a university. Uh, unclassified information. I'm going to have to notify somebody about this one. Uh, Missouri State. So the point I'm trying to make here, and again, is I don't like to throw people under the bus, is just that this is, I'm throwing people on the bus, but I'm going to notify them and I'll try and fix this issue. However, comma, the point I'm trying to make here is you continue to see market growth, market evolution, cool things showing up on the space, all these crazy things that folks are selling. If you know how to run the right fucking Google search, you can find the majority of the things that you would need for the purpose of reconnaissance. Now, that also takes me back to something that I tell folks during workshops is there's only two things that I can't control in this whole threat, sort of whatever you call it, the Lockheed Martin kill chain. I can't control reconnaissance and I can't control weaponization. I know how to use the internet. I know how to do these things without getting picked up. There's lots of people that do. Um, so you can't control me reconning things. I can get them right now, like this second. I just was doing it. You can't control weaponization. Whether or not I take that information, those passwords, those other things, and start throwing them into the mix, you can't stop me from doing that. However, what you can control is the other pieces of that platform, puzzle, life cycle, whatever you want to call it. And you you can take back more of the, the, uh, the, the landscape. So this this is worth noting that it's not that this is crazy difficult. It's not that this requires 
um, a super degree in hackerology or whatever. It just requires an understanding of what to do and where to look and how to use the tools correctly. And you can find out pretty much where, and I'm not on the dark web. This is Google. Like if I went down and tore, pull up the line of stuff. Honestly, if I was going at this with full on attack sort of methodology, I'd get tour information. I'd get what I could on Google. I'd bounce the two off each other, find the really good stuff and then go after it. But it, it this doesn't require, we need to stop looking for the crazy, amazing super fix because the fixes are in front of us. These are all violations of best practices. All those things that I just talked about are violations of best practices. There's laws against them. There's legislation against them, et cetera, et cetera. Those organizations, which again, I'll notify, they should have fixed these problems, but it's a misconfiguration. It's trying to do too much with not enough. And it just leads to, you know, bigger, badder problems. Okay. I want to do one more thing because I saw, I think it was, um, organization was given a hundred million dollars now for their um, zero trust VPN thing. Now, I don't know how the hell that came to be, but zero trust and VPNs are not in the same sort of realm. VPNs can help you get past um, where we started with COVID, but they're not the long-term solution. You need to do different things, different ways. hundred million dollars for something like that. I don't know how that transpired, but let's just just to bury the, the the body on VPNs, let me do a couple of things here to show just how vulnerable VPN stuff is. Okay, so there's a very common VPN, um, OpenVPN, which is something a lot of people use. Uh, the port for that is easy to find. If you go on Google, I'm not gonna get that out here, but you can go figure it out. I'm gonna run a search and show them to go see how many systems that are using that particular port, that particular software that have that configuration are in the United States. So click, click. Here we go. Right now, I'm looking at 175,847 of those. Those VPNs that are either misconfigured or talking to the internet or doing something that they probably shouldn't, um, and I can get to them. Now, does that mean I can get to all 175,000? No. Does it mean out of 175,000, if I can get to 10%, that's a pretty large uh, sample size? Yes. Now, let's look at some of the organizations that are noted in this particular configuration issue. It's not going to be what you would think. And this is also concerning because this is just one VPN provider. Um, one VPN provider, one port that you know what to look for, you know how to look for it, and you get to where you're going to go. And it's a bad day for everyone involved. Um, and of course, Shodan's run slow as I'll get out, but that just is what it is. <clears throat> now, let's see. So I see... Um, one, two, three of the largest cloud providers that have got configuration stuff. And it's not them that have it. It's someone's using their stuff and then it's configured and there's a VPN to allow that connectivity to go through. However, their names are on there. Um, I see cable organizations. I see major telecom providers. I see healthcare organizations. I see hospitals. Uh, I see managed security service providers. I see... Um, a variety of others that are bouncing inside of this thing. Um, telephone systems, virtual meeting systems, uh, pharmacy, uh, a couple of others here. So let's let's table that for a second. Now let's go back and do one more interesting little search that is probably going to provide some um, some data that would be of value here. So if we take 
a variant of the organization's approach that has this zero trust VPN and I run that, um, even them who are selling a zero trust VPN solution set that got a hundred million dollars worth of funding that are out there right now. And I'm not going to put their name out there. You got to at least go do a little bit of research. If I configure it correctly and I go search for that, um, in the United States, I can see that there are three systems which are out there that are, um, vulnerable. Um, and each one of them gives pretty good resolution on what's going on with that particular thing. And one of them has remote access enabled. So, you know, in the grand scheme of how many customers they have, is that a big deal? Not really. However, comma, the point I'm trying to make is an zero trust VPN thing doesn't make a lick of sense. And literally here on this call in the last few minutes, I found systems that were available based on that configuration. So does that, should that make you call into question whether or not these things are legit? I don't know. It would at least make me think twice. And again, I'm not telling anybody to go do this stuff. I'm just saying it's possible. It's interesting. You know, it's worth a look. And I'm going to share the piece here uh, with the cool new um, stuff that we're getting from. There we go. New U.S. breach reporting rules for banks take effect May 1st. Right, regulars at 36-hour cyber notification deadline for banks. Uh, this is Mahir Bagwe, I believe his last name, April 29, 2022, so pretty accurate. Um, new, new cyber incident reporting rules are set to come into effect on May 1. Banks in the country are required to notify regulars in the first 36 hours after an organization suffers a qualifying security incident or computer security incident. This was passed regulation-wise in November 2021. Uh, the rule was passed by a collective of U.S. regulators, including FDIC, the Board of Governors, and the Federal Reserve System, and the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, so Treasury. Um, financial service institutions back from the U.S. economy, which our economy is in the tank right now anyway, are one of the most targeted sectors by global cyber. Sure, that's where they go. They rob banks because that's where the money is. Um, this legislation is crucial because timely notification plays a significant role in restricting an attack scale. Okay. Um, cyber criminals often conduct attacks as part of broader campaigns, including executing supply chain attacks, but the victim, blah, blah, blah. Well, this is a new requirement from the FDIC and other regulators. Most U.S. banks have already been conditioned to a 72, so this is half of that 72 hour incident reporting window through the New York thing. And I read through that legislation that they published. Um, Smaller window, grown accustomed to uh, term and actual. So, I mean, that's cool-ish. However, comma, I read through the whole 80-page long rule set that's there. If you do that, what you notice very quickly is that the terms that are used for the definitions here are pretty open to interpretation. Um, and then the question also becomes, and it's literally noted within that 80-page long draft rule, who do they report to? especially if you're talking with smaller banks, what's the structure? How do you know that they have them? Go talk to a lot of these like local credit unions and tell me who runs cybersecurity for them. Um, it just, in my opinion, this is a lot of interesting legislation that could be useful, but it's really just lipstick on a pig and the pig is pretty ugly and smells pretty bad. Um, and it's not going to necessarily make things much different. 
It will likely increase the burden on incident responders to try and find patient zero or the whatever the initial occurrence happened and the root cause along with the true scale and impact of security incidents as quickly as possible, indirectly increasing the resources they require for incident response was said by this for this Joseph Carson from Delinea, which begs the question, okay, well, how is this going to work when we typically see all this publication around, we have no people in cybersecurity, small and mid-sized businesses don't do it very well, they can't keep up, but we're gonna say small credit unions, small banks, you organizations that literally can't keep up with this because you don't have the human capital, here's another requirement to keep up with it. It just becomes more failed processes, more failed approaches. Um, yeah. So, okay, onto this one, um, super useful stuff. If you don't know PowerShell, PowerShell is great. It can do some really powerful things, the power side. Um, this was published by Lawrence Abrams. Uh, Microsoft PowerShell lets you track Windows registry changes. Now, why would that be of use? Um, it's because it's a handy tip, was shared online this week, which, power, which tells you how to use PowerShell to monitor changes in Windows registry. So as Windows updates, applications install, settings changes, and malware constantly changes to make Windows registry, it will allow you to quickly spot what was changed. So basically, using these commands, if you're paying attention, you can look for deltas within your system registry. Uh, diagnose issues, removal issues, see what settings have changed. So uh, Swift on Security, who's awesome, put this thing out there, tweeted how they would love to see a Windows registry editor, uh, blah, blah, blah. They're not created by default. Microsoft's principal security architect, Lee Holmes, tweeted an example of how you could do something similar in PowerShell. It literally said, here's the commands to run. Holmes' example shows you how to use PowerShell to list all the Windows registry keys and store them in a snapshot variable. Then at a later point in time, you create a snapshot of the current registry key and then you look for the, del the delta, basically. The commands are right here. Um, you know, create your base registry, you know, run this PowerShell command. Be admin, right? Make sure you're admin, whatever, and then run that command and then compare that stuff. Here's the crazy thing. If you do this, you'll notice things that change over time, which fine, it's a little bit manual, but the point is, I would bet my left foot that if you did this over to what typically happens with most uh, antivirus solutions, because they're not looking at it from this manner, especially not with PowerShell, you'd probably catch it with this before you would with that, that antivirus solution. So if you're looking for a way to do free stuff because PowerShell is already in Windows systems and you wanna basically beat out your AV solution, I would say give this a shot. Um, I've done it, you get some interesting results. It's pretty cool to see what comes back and uh, you might find things that you're missing. So, you know, for the, I'll, I'll put the link to this after we're done. Um, if nothing else, if you just want to screw around and kind of see what PowerShell can do for you, go check this out. But then remember, you know, if you can do it parallel, if somebody else can get your creds, they can do it PowerShell too. This was interesting. Sky Mavis plans to become zero trust organization after a $600 million Ronin hack. This was all over the news, uh, April 27th, um, in a new force modem report. Uh, Sky Mavis, the creator of Axie Infinity and its Ronin sidechain, which this is Bitcoin-y stuff. I don't really understand all the moving parts there, but I just read this because it was like, well, you know, everybody says Bitcoin is the most secure thing in the universe or whatever, but obviously it's not. The team, after being breached for six, you know, for how much was it? $600 million. 
So we're going to move to VZT and add more than 100 validator nodes in the future. And I've been trying to learn up what all validator nodes actually do, um, but I don't know much about Bitcoin, to be perfectly honest. But it, the point here really is it took a $600 million attack for this organization that's got crazy funding doing all kinds of crazy things to go, well, we should approach the problem differently. Our goal is to become a fully anti-fragile ZT organization's framework that assumes the Sky Mavis is always at risk, sure. Um, the report called in the uh, March 23rd attack where hackers stole more than a whole bunch of Bitcoins and whatever from Ethereum connected bridge, whatever the hell that is, um, $600 million worth of thievery and made one of the biggest crypto hacks to date. Um, it was North Korea. Uh, Lazarus Group was who they ultimately identified. Again, kind of goes back to, are you sure? Are you positive? Would you go into court and say that? Attribution is always sketchy. However, comma, North Korea, pretty much typically, if you think it's them, it's them. They're not necessarily known as the best at covering their tracks because they don't really care. Um, yeah, so, but the point here is that this is pretty significant. They're putting a, a bug bounty place in, uh, in the company. They're dealing with different cybersecurity firms to outsource a lot of their services side, um, they've got more money coming in to fix the problem, deal with it, and they're putting these validator nodes out there. But it took them a $600 million kick in the teeth to realize that they had to approach the problem differently. Like that's probably kind of concerning. I, don't, I, I would be pissed if I was an investor and somebody came back and goes, oh yeah, well now we're gonna take security seriously even though we just lost $600 million after you gave us 150 million not the best way to do it. And I read through, like, here's the thing you can go and actually read to their credit. You can go read through the, the postmortem, like everything that happened and it runs through exactly what occurred. The timeline, you know, uh, the breach started on the 23rd and closed down on the 29th. Um, basically a bunch of fake things went on. Uh, it, uh, talked about, we didn't have a proper tracking system for monitoring large outflows. Um, so yeah, the employees are under constant spear phishing attacks. So somebody got fished on social channels. One employee was compromised, one employee with excessive privileges. That employee no longer works at Sky Mavis. Don't know whether they fired him there or after or during. The attacker leveraged that access wah, 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 to penetrate Sky Mavis IT infrastructure and gain access to the nodes. Um, so there you go, like Cyber 101, Lateral movement, escalation of privileges, take stuff, move on, go on about your day. Um, could have been fixed, could have been done with this before, especially since everyone out there has been attacked in this very specific manner. Uh, shouldn't happen, to be perfectly frank. Another really good article on uh, Fast Company. How to build a culture of trust in a zero trust environment. Now that seems to be kind of counter the way that you would think about this. Um, but I think this is worth reading because it helps us kind of understand um, how this should work. So let's see, Kevin Lynch, uh, who's from Optiv, I believe. The trust and security are two sides of the same coin. Sure, as leaders are responsible for cultivating a culture of trust with our employees and we have responsibility to employee clients, blah, blah, blah. The vast majority of breaches, and he threw in some really good statistics in here that validate this approach. 85%, according to the Dibber, contain a human element and often involve people who already have access to a network, employees or other insiders. Uh, insiders. The high cost of a breach, $4 million in 2021 long average. Uh, lengthy downtimes, yes. So cyber bad reality, right? Talks about complacency, talks about risk, 
talks about some of the, the insider threat T-type problems that we deal with in cyber. This is a really well put together article. This is somebody that actually understands what's going on. Um, also give some more stats here. Cyber criminals will always seek to pass the least resistance. Yes, one of the easiest ways to penetrate a network is to exploit a human vulnerability through phishing, which I literally just talked about with the crypto thing. That's why 96% of cyber threats, <coughs> let me read that again. 96% of cyber threats are email based because people click links and phishing continue, but oh, we continue to think we're gonna fix this with phishing training. Man, all it takes is one employee complacent or disenfranchised, pissed off or whatever, to, or not paying attention to click a bad link for threat actors to obtain access creds, right? Uh, it's important to have internal uh, cybersecurity awareness. Sure, train your people, but don't rely on them to be trained to stop a compromise. Um, now, minimizing your risk through zero trust, right? Move to the zero trust model, protect everyone, verify everything. Yes, with ZT, every user is authenticated, authorized, and validated. And then there's, that's the whole process there. Multi-factor, which is added in. Yes, when designing inside a threat program, ZT should be the cornerstone, sure. Um, and then building a culture of trust in a zero trust environment is not an easy task due simply to the nature of the architecture and the necessities involved in implementing it. Fair. However, as with many, a great and difficult concept, clear and open communication is the best tool a company has at its disposal. Great. Like, tell them what's up. Tell them why you're doing this. Tell them the value proposition. Help the users understand what this is going to mean for them. And then go forward. Honestly, communicating the need for increased security while openly explaining the intent behind active threat hunting, like, if you want to work here and you want your freaking paycheck, I need to do things in security that will take care of us and will take care of you. Doesn't mean I'm draconian. Doesn't mean I want to look at what dirty porn you're looking at at home on the internet or whatever. I just need to do things that will help us be better defended. Part of that is a strategic climate to ZT. Tell them that, right? Openly explain the intent behind active threat hunting and help alleviate the fears of employees may have regarding the enhanced measures and reduce their trepidations when the time comes to begin implementing them. Clean. Clear, simple, right? When appropriately executed, ZT can, at zero trust, for those that don't understand that, can actively increase trust between companies and their employees. Send, counter, right? It's, but again, back to what I've said before, this is not zero faith. This is zero trust, right? I have faith in my employees to be good people. I have faith that my employees will do the right thing. I have faith that they're giving their best. I don't trust that the configurations that are in place, that the other things that are built into the system are worthy of my trust, therefore I'm gonna remove it. Trust that every measure is being taken to protect the organization's safeguard, the livelihoods of its employees, the business, by ensuring the company can continue doing business uninterrupted. Hmm? The call for a zero trust environment within an organization can challenge the covenant based on trust, respect, and expectation between the company's and its employees. Yes, understanding that it is necessary for the resilience and continuity of the organization to turn this apparent divide into a connection where all levels of the company are jointly working towards safeguarding everyone's best interests. You can tell them that, like, look, I am putting a strategic initiative in place. This is what it's going to do for you. This is why it matters. This is the value that we get out of it. And then move forward. You know, one thing I learned in the military is it doesn't require everyone to accept all of the things for a strategy to be put in place. There are some people that are just never gonna be happy. There are some people that aren't going to like what you have to do to make things work. And ultimately, the, the chaff will sort of fall to the side. You have to do things to keep the business secure, to grow the organization, to do the right thing for your people. And if folks don't like it, then they'll age themselves out or they'll give you a reason to help move them on to another career or something like that. Um, 
this is a really good article. Go read this because this this uh, Kevin Lynch, he's the CEO of Optive, um, did a great job of running down why this is needed, what you should expect, um, those types of things. A couple of more things real quickly because everybody's got better stuff to do. Case study, where to begin on your ZT journey. I meet BASO of International Seaways, which most people wouldn't think of that. Seaways, right? Well, who would be doing ZT at a, a, a maritime shipping company? Gave a great rundown. And here's the point I want to make. So he said, I consider network as the lowest hanging fruit that could provide quick benefits. Okay, hang on for a second. A ZT network approach demands networks use technologies like next generation firewall to segment access networks, then go to O365, and then uh, framework will allow mitigation of any operational risk to the business. Great. So here's the twist. When you go through the rest of it, he talks about the fact that they've already done a lot of the other things. They've already done some stuff around identity access management. They've already taken care of other pieces of low-hanging fruit. However, for him, for his leadership position, for the things that he recognizes, for the strategy he's put in place, he's going to take care of network first. Great. That's your deal. It's your approach. It's your plan. It's the way that you want to do things. You're in charge. Pick your poison. You may have different opinions with someone else. I would say to make sure that you've solved IAM first and then go to the network later. But hey, the point is a good strategy from an organization that understands what they're doing and actually knows the ins and outs of the problem. They can do this however they would like, as long as they continue to achieve the goal. Uh, lastly, real quick. So there is an organization, a uh, publication blah, on GovCIO, How Zero Trust Modernized Grants Management of the Justice Department. Melissa Harris, I read this and I almost fell out of my chair because I was like, oh my God, uh, an organization inside of the government that I would consider to be one of the most old, archaic, out-of-date organizations. Sorry for those folks that work there. It just is what it is. If you've ever applied for grants, if you've ever done any of this stuff, especially with the Justice Department involved, the fact that they've enabled ZT and are enabling ZT and that this is working for them and they tell you what they're doing and how they're doing it and why they're doing it and the benefits they're getting, it's really good to read this. Now, there was also a recent breach that happened well, not recent, but a breach that happened prior to this that was kind of the nail in the coffin for them. Somebody got fished. They had a whole bunch of things going on. They pointed, I think it was like $24 million of government money went to somebody else within this whole uh, Machiavellian bugaboo between who did what where. Uh, but they had a final nail in the coffin of like, we got to do something different. And what did they do? They started moving to ZT, started making this part of the plan process going forward, moving to the cloud, blah, blah, blah. Like this is a great example. And if these folks can do it, Anyone can do it. So this doesn't have to be impossible. I don't think the arguments are valid anymore about we can't enable ZT. If this organization can do it and at least approach the problem more intelligently, anybody can. Right? So know that. Like, this is the reality. Anyway, it's uh, oh, two minutes over my time. It's the uh, fourth, five, four. May the fourth be with you. May the fourth be with you. Anyway, on 2022, thanks for listening. Hope you found this valuable. And if you did, make some comments, say something. Or if you think I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong too. Either way, conversation is good and that's how we fix this problem. Till next time, stay smart, stay safe, stay secure. See ya. Disclaimer, the information in this podcast episode, aka episode, is provided for general information purposes only. By listening to this episode, you understand that this is not specific technical guidance from the host. No information contained in this episode should be construed as security advice from the author, host, or guest 
nor is it intended to be a substitute for security advice on any particular subject matter. No listener of this episode should act or refrain from acting on the basis of any information included in or accessible through this episode without seeking the appropriate technical or other professional advice on the particular facts and circumstances that are discussed. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All views expressed therein are those of the host and his guest and should not be considered as being endorsed by nor related to the host or the guest's employers.